From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do this every week. We do it via Zoom for the last year and a half, coming to you remotely, but it allows everybody to be here no matter where they are. Some of our guests are in pretty far-fung places. Some of our hosts happen to be in far-fung places right now, but we're delighted to have the whole crew in here. We're going to be here for the next two hours, and as we have been doing for the last year and a half, we'll start with a little COVID discussion. Every now and then, instead of just kicking around ourselves, we bring in someone from who actually knows something about medicine as opposed to us who just uh, kind of opine from the sidelines and have learned a bit over the last year and a half. We bring in people on the front lines or real experts. Today, we are delighted and privileged to have Dr. Eric Topol join us. We have been following Dr. Topol closely on Twitter. He's got a hugely informative Twitter feed. For those of you deeper in the medical community know he's got a longer career, started as a cardiologist, worked his way up through Cleveland Clinic, now is with Scripps. We're going to hear a little bit more about all of these things. But first, we want to welcome onto the show, Dr. Topol. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Look forward to the discussion. Well, let's dive right into it, Dr. Topol. You've got a, an op-ed in The Guardian today about the U.S. flying blind on the Delta variant. And so we're going to eventually dive deeper into where you're coming from and and, and why you're such a great follow on Twitter and so informative. But let's just start with that. You've got The Guardian's one of the great publications still out there, and you've got a piece there. Tell us where you're coming from on this editorial. Yeah, well, uh, I guess The Guardian asked me because they had seen some uh, tw- Twitter posts of mine about complaining about the CDC lack of tracking. Uh, as you know, we flew blind uh, in the first year of the pandemic. And the hope was that we'd get our act together this year. Uh, and never has it become so important as during this Delta wave. So the problem here is that we have no data for this country. We have 70,000 people in the hospital. We don't even know how many of those people are vaccinated or unvaccinated, no less what their age is, what when they were vaccinated, what vaccine they got, and on and on and on. We have nothing, nothing. It's, to me, as I wrote, unfathomable. So um, we, we, here we are. I think everyone knows how bad the situation is in parts of this country. Worst ever in Florida in the entire pandemic. Remember, we didn't have vaccines for the first three waves. And we have the, first, the worst wave in the southeast Gulf Coast, you know, with places like Louisiana and Arkansas and Mississippi, Alabama. These are really succumbing in a major way to the Delta wave. So this is on CDC, unfortunately. They should have this data every – there shouldn't be a public health department in this country that isn't collecting this data and having it uh, channeled centrally to the CDC and put it out in real time every day. Um, you know, I was an advisor for the COVID-19 tracking project. It had hundreds of volunteers, you know, students, young people that called the states and, and if need be counties every day to collate that data. Mm-hmm. And they stopped doing that in March. They basically got burnt out, right? And we have no one who's stepped in. And our data uh, is, uh, you know, display um, is shoddy. But, you know, that was one thing when we had the virus relatively contained. Now it's the opposite. 
Mm-hmm. Dr. Topol, you say that you, mostly people just burnt out on this. We know that the data gathering was this gargantuan yeah. effort. And we've even been in touch with some local hospitals and they talk about the reporting burden. And so it kind of works at all levels. Where do you think the real breakdown was? Is it, is it, was it, is it with the CDC? Is it with the people who fund the CDC? Is it with the local institutions that have to report up? Where is the breakdown? Well, I think it has to be a central policy at CDC. If you're a county, state, Department of Health, you have to have this de minimis data, and we have to get it every day, seven days a week. And, you know, there can't be any uh, lack of consistency there. It's just too darn important. So it is a network effect, Kate. I mean, you can't just say it's on the local health department, but I don't see how a local health department can practice without having this minimal data so that, you know, we have to make big decisions coming out. Are we going to give boosters? Are we, who are going to get the boosters? Uh, you know, we have no data. We're, we're relying on data from Israel and the UK. What about our data? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're a big country with big resources and we're not using our resources or our intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Tobel, just a quick question, um, I, just to help our listeners understand, if I went to the hospital today, for whatever reason, I went to the hospital, they're going to know Eric Bradlow went to the hospital. They have to enter in some isn't it, electronical medical records system. They have to know I'm in the hospital. There'd be some diagnosis, some, some, maybe it's even CDC code. There'd be some code assigned to my diagnosis. Why isn't that data um, aggregated and centralized? Is, am I missing something or am I asking the wrong question? No, you're asking the right question. That is, everyone who's in the hospital with COVID Somewhere in their chart, the electronic record, is their vaccination status and all the things I just reviewed. But it's not going anywhere. It's not being collected. And part of it is, you know, we have a Tower of Babel with electronic health records. We have lots of different systems. You know, we got Epic and Cerner and, you know, and many, many, many others. Part of it's that. But part of it is not a deliberate process that's been established. That data has to be You know, 70,000 is not a lot of people in the hospital right now. I mean, it's horrendous if you're COVID and you're in the hospital. What I mean is it it wouldn't be, it all didn't just go in today. You know, they've been going in in July uh, and the last, you know, four or five weeks in droves. It isn't that hard to get that data. And that is critical information that we have to have. So, uh, I mean, I'm discussing this and thinking about this intensely as well. And I don't think there's anything we're going to be able to do anything about it because our country, as you said, is a tower of Babel. It is, it is not centralized. It is not Israel where everyone has to be a member of the national health service or UK. They call it that in Israel, they call it something else. And, but on the other hand, we're an enormous country, yeah. 330 million people. We have sub regions for which we can probably solve this problem. So instead of what do you think about potentially trying to figure out how we can, get a 10 million, you know, metropolitan area and get the data there accurately. Yeah, no, well, to trying to solve this giant problem in the United States, which you're never going to get until the next time around. Right. Well, I think that is a piecemeal solution, right? That you just use some city, town, cohort, whatever. You know, in this era of big data, as, as you well know, to have this kind of data, you know, uh, that we just talked about, including comorbidities, you know, for 69, that's nothing. That's nothing. To take any little tiny slice of that is 
potentially skewed, distorted, as you well know. The point is, this is doable. I mean, if we had the same hundreds of volunteers that were working on the COVID-19 tracking project and we told them, collate, curate this data every day, they would do it. Okay, it's doable, even though we live in a bureaucratic mess of a country. I mean, I mean, bureaucratic, but we know we can do this. We COVID-19 tracking did a phenomenal job when they were up and going. They, they stopped, you know, before the vaccination campaign got into high gear. So, no, I disagree. I, I want all the data of hospitalizations and deaths. I don't want a little slice. I want everything. So, Dr. Topol, let me just ask a follow-up to that. So, um, you know, as Cade mentioned, besides being a statistician, I'm a professor of marketing. If you asked a company in marketing, optimize your expenditure. Oh, but by the way, we're not going to give you spend data or outcome data. They'd be like, what? How, how do you want me to do that? So how does, I mean, the CDC is filled with smart people. Hospitals yeah. are filled with smart people. Yeah. How do they not know that without, as you mentioned, comorbidity data, vaccination data, maybe even, you know, other forms of data at a local level. They have to know that you can't do optimal allocation of resources without that data. So why isn't there like a national outcry that this is the first thing that when the Biden administration took over, besides getting vaccines into arms, let's get data into computers. I couldn't agree with you more. But, you know, we were getting away with it. The virus was getting contained in this country. If you look, you know, back in May, we were looking really good. And, you know, it, the thought was, well, the vaccination campaign, it's going to win and we're going to put this baby to rest or this virus to rest. The problem was we, the Delta changed everything. I mean, our vaccination was adequate for alpha, but it isn't. And so I co totally agree with you. But, you know, the, the data that we're not getting extends beyond what we've just been talking about. We don't do genomics. And, this, and that's really cr critical. Why do I say that? It's because the virus can be evolving still and we wouldn't know it. We're doing such a tiny fraction. You know, the, the Delta cases have so much virus, they're easy to, to sequence. And we would know exactly what the hell's going on at the level of virus evolution. There's going to be another Greek letter after Delta that's mm -hmm. going to be important. We wouldn't know it if we fell on it right now, okay? Because we're not doing the sequencing that's pivotal. The other thing is, if you're familiar, the PCR tests, they have a thing called CT, cycle threshold. The lower they are, the higher the viral load, right? Mm -hmm. We should have the CT value on everyone because each one of these Delta infections that winds up in the hospital, no less gets sick without the hospitalization. We want to know, is it the virus? Is it the viral load that the person got? Is it the host, the person? We need to know what the hell is going on. And we have no clue in this country, really. Dr. Topol, what decisions are you trying to influence right now? When, for example, this particular editorial on this particular topic we've been talking about, is this something we can still, we still have time to change and improve on that's going to help for this pandemic? Or is your dialogue aimed more at the institutions we need for next time around, which is something everybody tells us is going to happen sooner rather than later? No, I, I think it could help in this pandemic. I mean, we could mobilize if, you know, we know it can be done. COVID-19 tracking showed us it can be done. If we mobilize a, a crew, a significant crew of people to make sure we had this data every day, organize that, mm -hmm. um, 
we can do this. And of course, then we'll be ready for, you know, the, the next wave uh, that we're inevitably going to see, uh, it, it, unfortunately. So, no, I, I, I think we can do this. But, you know, um, another thing that we didn't talk about yet and involving a different agency is the FDA. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, back, I think it was in early July, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about that the FDA needs to give full approval for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And they're equally responsible for this mess, okay? And the reason I say that is they should have had that done by June at the latest, all right? The, the, they were having rolling uh, data submission from Pfizer and Moderna starting in December. Mm-hmm. And all those months, they, they had time for plan inspections to review the data on freezers and all the other things besides just safety and efficacy. But they didn't do it, Okay. Now they're going to supposedly have this approval by the end of August, only because the pressure started to mount, that they hadn't said a word, no transparency, right? Well, you started seeing like yesterday, the military is going to get vaccinated, mm-hmm. right? Well, guess what? If, the, if in May or June, if FDA had given full approval, the military would have had mandatory vaccination back then as would every health system, as would every major private company and municipality and universities and high schools and on and on. But mm-hmm. you see, we're so far into this Delta wave. You know the prevalence of infections due to Delta right now in the United States? 96.5% right now, Okay, right? What if we had been able to do these things when it was 10% before it went into an exponential growth, Right. So what's your explanation of that, given that the delays you're talking about occurred about a year into this thing and everyone, no one was blind to what we were in the middle of. How could that have been as slow and delayed and irresponsible as it was? Well, you know, there's been really great things. I don't want to harp only on the bad things, but if you look at, we had the sequence of this SARS-CoV-2 virus, January 10th of 2020. And we had unprecedented uh, hypervelocity of developing the templates, testing them in people, largest clinical trials in the history of vaccinology, mm-hmm. and then rolling it out all in 10 months. So it can be done, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to say is that that momentous, in many ways, you know, um, miraculous mm-hmm. triumph of vaccines we haven't followed suit with the approval. Full approval makes, is a big deal, big deal legally, that rubric. Mm-hmm. And the fact is now it's going to be eight, nine months to get the darn full approval of the vaccines. Well, no, that's just not uh, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and the CDC not getting their act together. You know, frankly, my view was we got a new administration in January. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a new CDC, a new FDA. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Well, it isn't great. But you know what? That wasn't a big deal until Delta hit. Until Delta. That changed everything. Because this is, this is a just a horrendous virus to cope with. Dr. Topol, can you speak? That's an interesting point you made, that we've had trouble on this side of a new administration. It it kind of says that some of the administrative challenges we have transcend politics. And, and there aren't many, we're always looking for issues that transcend <laughs> politics around here. So how do we better understand what we're facing, given that both sides 
of the political sphere have had trouble pushing things through. I mean, look, there's a lot that got pushed through to your to what you to what you said. But what should we understand about the medical establishment, the legal world around that medical establishment for future challenges, given what we've observed on this one? Well, As yeah, you, I mean, I, I think uh, we're giving a little too much baggage to the current administration that really started with the prior one. So the reason why we only have 50% of the country fully vaccinated is because, in part, we had anti-science nurtured, anti-vax nurtured by the prior administration. And we still do. Where are these states that have erupted? They're red states. Where is the politicization against masks? We have mandates against mask mandates. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? Okay? So... We have a residual anti-science politics, right? It's a very serious problem. Mm-hmm. And that's holding back. Now, you know, you got to give the current administration a lot of credit. They got the vaccinations up to four and a half million per day, per day in April. If we had kept up that momentum, we would have had a Delta immunity wall that would be relatively impenetrable, but it didn't happen, Right. So it isn't just, you know, old administration, new administration is a carryover. And the, pol- the politics here have hurt this country badly. If you compare it to UK, Israel, Canada, that are 15 percent of their total population higher vaccination than us. And if you look at what Israel's going through right now, which is a really bad wave, even with that high level of vaccination, mm-hmm. that gives you a little anchoring of what's going on here. Well, I, I guess these high levels of vaccination still go, still having, you know, yeah. these kind of waves go through them su- suggests to me that maybe this, you know, we keep kind of, we had this kind of panacea of, of herd immunity that we were shooting through, but what if that just occurred? What if herd immunity only really, it's not really kind of a measure like, you know, that you can look across an entire country and say we've achieved it. It's really at very like kind of local within local communities and local networks. Yeah, And in that case, you know, are there always going to be communities, especially in the United States with its political and regional kind of variation? Are there always going to be large enough kind of communities that don't take the vaccine or that don't like do this? Where that, that, that in itself, it means that we'll never sort of achieve kind of a we're, we're always going to have an endemic, essentially virus paired with it mutating relatively rapidly as well. Right. Well, it's a really important point you bring up, Shane, and that is this population level immunity whereby if you get the majority uh, uh, immune um, response protected, then the minority basically are drag effect, that they're, they're unlikely to get infected, all right? Some people call that herd immunity. That term has been used a lot over the course of the pandemic. But the point is, is that if you get what used to be 70%, if we could get to 70% of the population vaccinated, and or prior infection to COVID, so they had immunity, then the other 20, 30% of people would, would benefit from that. The, the chance of the virus finding them would be limited, right? Now, that was true. <laughs> that was true for all the versions of the virus until we got to Delta. Now we need 90 to 95% people protected to establish for the only 5% that are left unprotected because it's so it's a super spreader strain right and that realization is a sad tough one and that's why we're seeing even in places that have such high vaccination rates like israel 
shooting through because they don't even have nine. No one has 95% of their population vaccinated. So that is the problem right now. We have encountered a just very formidable super strain virus. So uh, I want to just uh, speak more clearly about this because I, I've been tracking Israel closely. They have great data. I mean, they're the envy yep. of what we do here. Yep. Break it down by age, et cetera. I've been staring at it. It's in Hebrew. I've been downloading and translating it. Um, but one of the things that, that I've been noticing, I mean, is it just doesn't seem to be, a, the vaccine that is, does not seem to be effective at stopping infection. Um, and, and I can't even see a, a modest gain. There's a momentous, wonderful, incredibly 10 to 1 effect of keeping down severe illness, which is, which is terrific. And, and, uh, you, you, and that's after controlling for every age group. But in terms of spread, it's just, it, the, the vaccine doesn't seem to work. Do you have any comment on that? Am I, am I really? Yeah, no, no. I, I got a lot of comments on that, um, yeah. Abraham. So firstly, uh, the, the data from uh, Israel is really important even though it's based on 9 million people. But as you alluded to earlier, you know, they got great electronic health records and it's all, you know, uh, coalesced. Now, uh, Israel data is showing us that the vaccines basically are leaking. They're, they're not providing a protection against infection. And, you know, their latest estimate is 40%. 40%. It was 95%. And these yep. are the mRNA, okay? This is Pfizer's mRNA vaccine. Now, that is troubling, obviously, to put it mildly. But the point here is that that 40% is about the people who got the vaccinations that were over age 60 in the first group. So because they have granular data on each person, right, they can tell us who are those people that are leaking, getting infections, and they're the people who are older that were the first group to get vaccinated. They're now six, seven months out. All right. Dr. Topol, which of those two things are you emphasizing? Their age? Is it less effective on the older or are you oh, most? Well, I, I, can't, I, I wish I, I wish I could tell you, okay, exactly. but the point is they went by age. So we don't know. We just know the first group. You found it. Okay, got it. It makes sense it's age too because we know their immune system is not as uh, revved up as younger people. Okay. So anyway, um, the other thing, just to point out, it's not just that the infection problem has emerged with Delta vaccination. I mean, it's still protecting, but, you know, not even half as well as the original strain or those different alpha and beta and gamma variants, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's also a leak in hospitalizations, severe illness as well, all right? Because it's not working as well there either, right? When you have so many cases, some of them are winding up in the hospital and they are getting um, hospitals, um, hospitalized increases there as well. So it is, that was 95% protection against infections, 95 plus percent against hospitalizations and deaths. Now it's probably 90-ish. It's okay. dropped some. Okay. It has, it has dropped some, but I looked at the data by age and I, I'm going to just throw it out there. What Caden said is that it does seem to be quite confounded, and, and uh, there's yeah. lots and lots. If you look at the rate of infection per person, um, unvaccinated uh, versus the rate of infection per person vaccinated in Israel, for every age group, there's uh, it's a lot of vaccinated people comparable. A little bit lower for vaccinated, but not that much lower. Maybe it's 20, 30, 40 percent in that range. 
um, which potentially leads to the question that it could be simply be age or it could be vaccine, the, va- the age of the vaccine, which then I want to ask you about. Um, I'm hearing stories in the United States of people going out and getting their are self self boostering. They're getting their third mm-hmm. booster just by walking into a Walgreens. We have such bad medical records. <laughs> nobody knows who got vaccinated. So you can just go into a CVS or a Walgreens or my own medical doc. My doctor, my, my primary care physician doesn't know that I got vaccinated through my work at CHOP. And so he keeps telling me, you know, you need to come in and get vaccinated. And of course, I have been, um, which means it quite easy for me if I thought it was a good idea to get a third booster. Um, is that coming? Should we be should be people considering that? I mean, where are we on that um, potential? Well, it's important because I think, you know, as of today, there's over 600,000 people over age 60 who have gotten third shots in Israel. Over yes. 600,000. They're, again, the leading edge on this. Um, and it's safe. And it does bring up the neutralizing antibody levels quite a bit to get that third shot. And it should be protective. And so far, the data look like it's quite protective. That you're getting back up to the levels of the original, um, you know, uh, before Delta, which is great. But uh, as far as what we should do here, we don't have the data, right? We talk, we discussed that. Um, we have discussions that are happening at the governmental levels and the CDC about what what do you think about booster? What do you think? But there's not an action plan yet, and so. You know, later this week, we're supposed to get word about the immunocompromised people. They're the logical. They need a booster for sure. But the people over age 60, people over age 50, who knows where do you draw the line? We don't have the data here. Um, And I think in Israel, they're going to start moving as soon as they finish with the less than 60. They're going to go, I mean, greater than 60, they're going to go to greater than 50, uh, as was intimated today. So we're behind. Part of that's data deficiency. Yes, we are a much larger country, but like you said, we don't track. And we need that data to make these critical decisions. So, Dr. Tobel, is the number we should be looking at, you know, we've always been thinking that, well, there's the vaccinated people and then there's the people that have had COVID. Is it wrong to think of them as, I know they're not interchangeable, but is it wrong to just sum the two numbers up and say, if we could get to 95% of the sum of those two numbers, we could be fine. Well, look, I take the prior COVID. I mean, they're better than not having any immune response. Well, does the prior COVID provide immunity to the Delta variant? Not great, but some, yes. Uh, in fact, there's a paper today that shows that the prior COVID people, they not only need one dose, but they need two doses of vaccine. I used to say if you had prior COVID, you know you had it. You know, one dose should get you to the best level possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we have new data just published this morning that, you know, the variants are just so tough, particularly we can anticipate with Delta, that was with beta and gamma, that you're going to need the two doses to, to get the highest level of immune response. So what we're getting out here is that prior COVID is, is great for part of that protection group. Yes, we shouldn't ignore that. We know well over 100 million Americans had COVID. We know that. The problem is a lot of those people don't know they had COVID, right? Because the first few months we had such pathetic testing. We had no testing for two months. And then a lot of people just never got, you know, their symptoms evaluated or had asymptomatic COVID. But they may have immunity. The problem is it's not as good as having prior COVID and a vaccine. That's the best. I mean, you're superhuman protection. Mm -hmm. If you got prior COVID 
natural immunity plus vaccination. And of course, since we don't have data, we don't know how many people had COVID and have gotten the vaccine. You know, we can, you can't just add the two numbers up. I mean, it's those, those could be, you know, 80% the same people as far as we know. We just, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, a really good data scientist you'll you'll remember is Yu Yang Gu. Um, We've had him. uh, Yes. Yeah. He's a good, good man. Anyway, he used to estimate, you know, of this hundred million, how many, he and I used to go back and forth. How many do you think are getting vaccinated? And he said, ah, maybe 40%, you know, we, but we add that in because that that's our best case. And that's why I'd say if we didn't have Delta, we had enough of those people plus the vaccination level that we're at, we would have been sitting pretty. We would have been at containment level, which I call, you know, less than, what less than two cases per hundred thousand that's real containment less than one is even better i mean we're not going to get to zero let's face it but it was delta that changed everything mm-hmm. dr topo we're, we don't want to, we could keep you for a long time we don't yeah. want to keep you too long but a, a couple questions but they're kind of big questions the first is the kind of impossible one and that is what he thinks going to happen next and look, we, we, we approach this question with all the humility that we should. We've asked it lots. We've answered it lots. We've seen everybody be wrong. But yet we're still interested in getting your thoughts on it and why, you, why you're thinking the way you're thinking. I wish I had a better uh, sense. Um, believe me, I, 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 I know we'll get through this Delta way. Every other country that's had a rough time has had a pretty abrupt U-turn, mm-hmm. starting with India but, you know, pretty much everywhere else. The concern is uh, we're seeing this come back in certain countries and wobble. And so, you know, we're going to get through this. Um, My guess is, you know, uh, sometime September we'll have turned it around because the virus is so darn efficient. It just burns through fast, as many people as it can find. And then, you know, basically uh, we get a timeout and we'll, we'll get that. The question is, in this period of Delta, can we rally? Can we help prevent a recurrence of Delta or the, uh, the next Greek letter or whatever that is that becomes a major variant? Mm-hmm. And I don't know because, you know, we're not doing it right here now. And um, I'm optimistic that, um, that we will get through this uh, what I'm worried about is that what we're seeing right now in the Gulf Coast um, and Southeast, is that going to spread? Every state is now involved in this Delta wave. The question is, are the ones who are relatively spared right now, are they going to light up? Mm-hmm. We're having this freaking Sturgis rally. What do you think happened there? The Sturgis rally, what did that do to North Dakota and South Dakota? And that vicinity became the worst COVID in the world in the weeks after the Sturgis rally. And we're having it again with 700,000 people with no regulations about masks, vaccinations, whatever. So I wouldn't be surprised because of that, you know, that promotes another surge in that part of the country. I'm worried about that stuff. So I think it's unpredictable because these, all these moving parts that we've been discussing. Thank you for that. Last question for you, sir. But this goes to your specialization. I'd love to hear more about how you how you migrated into this personalized medicine, precision medicine. But I'm curious, as you, you head up, so the Scripps Institute brings you to head up this new group, Translational Institute, um, on precision medicine, personalized medicine, using the genome. When you come to medicine with that lens and then look at this pandemic and, and, and these, these kinds of pandemics in general, how do you think about it? You're not talking about it in those terms. We're not talking about it in those terms. What can you share with us about how 
you think about it differently because of your work on the genome and your work on personalized medicine? How does that inform how you think about pandemics now and going forward? Well, I mean, I think the big thing is uh, we're really into genomic sequencing of the virus and how much we can learn. And you can basically track everything, not just, you know, what variant it is, but spatio-temporally. Like we could track every super spreader event. Um, we don't doing it, but we could. So I come at it from the genomic side of the power of genomics and also of the host. Why is it certain people are susceptible mm -hmm. and get really sick? And why do some people, they have the virus, they never even knew it. And a lot of that's, you know, the, the host genomics. So that's personalized, individualized in a way. Um, that's, you know, the way I sort of think of this pandemic because, you know, some people handle getting infection even when they're 90 years old incredibly well, whereas we've got, you know, babies that should be resilient that are really darn sick. So, you know, we these are some ways, what we call extreme phenotypes, where people that you'd expect to do extremely poor or well, and they're not, you learn from that. And, um, you know, I the other thing I would say, I think about the virus I, I want carefully look at those mutations because that's a guiding light as to where we're headed. Is there anything left for this virus to do to hurt us? Right. And, right. You, know, you know, there's only, it's not that long of, of a sequence and there's right. only so many freaking mutations it can do to us. Right. And um, Delta was a big detour. Unlike the other variants, alpha, beta, gamma, it went on a whole different course. All right. And that worries me. And so that's another part of that moving part story that I mentioned. That's when you get granular about individualized medicine and you use AI to predict the virus, where is it going? And will it ever let up on us? You know, will it ever evolve to a point where it's not so damn transmissible? That's what's doing us in here. It's contagiousness. And that's the hope that it will go there. You know, I wrote a piece with Roberto Bioroni, who's kind of the Fauci of Italy, about the fact that maybe we've got to peak fitness as far as uh, in a, the ability to override our vaccine. Okay. That's the hope. We don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Terrific. Well, listen, Dr. Topol, thank you so much for sharing um, your afternoon with us. We appreciate it. We greatly appreciate the work you're doing. I mean, even just the public work on, on Twitter is helpful and, and we encourage you to keep that up and, and even the deeper work, of course, but thank you again for the time. We hope to talk to you more down the road. Well, thanks, Kate. It's good to meet you and your crew and, uh, you're doing great stuff as well. And I'll, I always learn from a great data scientist out there. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. It's Dr. Bye. Topol, Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president of Scripps Research. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can join the conversation in a way. We hope you do. You can reach out to us on Twitter or email. Our Twitter handle is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically, and we listen to y'all. You give us questions, ideas, complaints. You give us lots, and we appreciate it. So reach out to us at WMoneyball. We also have a mailbag of sorts via email. 
Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read them all and we get online on the show as many as we can. And we're always happy to hear from you. Whether you're happy or not, let us know. If you're unhappy about something, let us know. We learn from it. If you're happy about something, let us know. We'll enjoy it. Guys, we are rolling into the second quarter here. Open lines, open mic segment. I think the obvious thing we got to hear a little bit about is the Olympics. These things just wrapped up a couple of days ago. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. I think maybe Sunday was the closing ceremony. Um, how, did, how, how was it for y'all? How was the Olympics for you guys? How did you consume it? What stands out to you? Anything, anything catch your eye? I consumed well, uh, a ton of it and I got really into the kind of random events that, you know, seemingly pop up every Olympics, you know? Uh, so no, it was, it was a really fun time. It was very exciting. It was, it was give, kind of, give us a, give us a random event that you were turned skateboarding, on. Skateboarding, archery. archery. There's, 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 there's an event where, where people like, and somehow the horses don't win the medals. The people do, but horses just kind of shuffle back and forth. I think they call it dancing or dressage or something like that. There's a, there's an Olympic event. Come on, oh, man. Springsteen's daughter won silver in some version of horses over there. That's well, that no, I mean, I, and again, I, I this is this is these are observations, not value statements. So, yeah, hey, I mean, right, I was kind about, of let's talk about archery for a second because mm-hmm. archery probably ought to get more credit for being around as long as it has been. I mean, people have been shooting bows and arrows, I mean, it's like the original weapon that's been some stuff, and yeah. you know, kings used to. They used to have contests and it's just like a thing. So there's some, it's cred. That's no, and I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I do think it, it's obviously like it, it, it certainly qualifies as a blend of this athleticism versus kind of, you know, strength is certainly needed. And, and, and as well as eye hand coordination and focus in contrast, there's a lot of shooting events. Like there's like four or five air pistol events now, which obviously have that eye hand coordination focus aspect, but obviously don't have the same amount of athleticism. Yeah. I think I like a little, atavism in my sport you know let's 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 keep it let's keep it a little bit old school um mm-hmm. in, in the ideal i mean there's lots to be enjoyed someone did you there was a little clip that ran around of someone giving a voiceover commentary on some synchronized swimming by the chinese team and he was just flipping out over what these guys were doing and to be fair i think he's exactly right what they're doing is absolutely ridiculous and extraordinary i mean just unbelievable and so I, I don't know. So there's just a lot to enjoy across these sports. And I'm always curious to hear what people kind of got into or what, what they ended up paying attention to. Adi. How did you consume the Olympics? Because I had uh, uh, the local broadcast as well as the app, and I found it overwhelming. There was just so much sports going on, so many new ones, so many that I just – and in fact, I just saw that the ratings were down to the lowest they've been – in many, many, many years. Oh, uh, do they capture ratings? I mean, do you have to aggregate? I, I, I don't know. That's a good question. So is that real? Um, but there was yeah, some I mean, mumble that it was hard to digest because of the, the, the different mediums. I mean, I, I think it was less. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised. Even if you once you accumulate across all the different options, whether the ratings are down, it was 12 hours difference in terms of like, I think a lot of people do, you know, if they if they already know the result, they are less likely to actually watch it. And 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 you know, I mean, I I watched a lot of stuff on on tape delay because what choice did we have? And I stayed up late to watch a few things live that I, I felt like I could. But you know, I think this also this 
just happens from what you know when it was hosted in a country that's 13 hours delayed at least from the east coast yeah because so, you're, you're seeing you wake up in the morning you look at espn and you learn about what's happening at the olympics yeah. and then that night you're seeing the event it's a little anticlimactic but i mean how i consumed it is i just kind of listened you know i went to the olympic website i saw what had actually happened during the day or what was about to happen and just kind of tried to find a channel that was showing it they had like four different channels um, of Olympic kind of coverage on there. And that's it, That's kind of just the NBC ones. There was also the Golf Channel, which I watched a lot of the golf tournament on the Golf Channel, which was really nice. Um, well, and again, one where golf, I felt like I needed, didn't need to see it live necessarily to enjoy it as much. Let's acknowledge that Xander Schauffele won the gold in golf. He has, not won a ma- he has not won a major yet, but people have been betting on him. My boy, uh, I think my boy Rufus has been pretty big on him. In, in recent months. He hadn't quite gotten it done, but it was nice to see him get mm-hmm. it done on the Olympic stage. Um, that I want to ask you all a question. Well, one, a, a big story was Allison Felix because she is now the most decorated track and field Olympian, U.S. track and field Olympian ever. And she's competed in umpteen Olympics and um, she's famously done it now as a mother. She also was a, she was a guest at one of our people analytics conferences just a couple of years ago. So she's the only Olympian I've ever shaken hands with. And she was just a complete delight and a great speaker, but she was also kind of the headliner for a good Olympics for us women. Did y'all see the statistic that us women won 58% of the uh, us medals, 58%. Oh, and so men won 42%. And that's a high watermark for women. And if you go back only a few decades, it's, it's, they were a very small percentage of the medals. And I'm curious what explains that. I'm curious well, what um, your attribution is when you see this trend over time with women competing relatively better against the world than the men are here. Come, I mean, go back a few decades, you got Title IX, right? Well, that's the, that's the most obvious thing, and that's what's getting a lot of credit, and Presumably, that's one of the forces. Yes. I, I mean, so, you know, guys, there's there's a lot more women's events uh, now than there was, you know, when you go back to those much okay, lower numbers. Simpler far fewer we events. Norm. We have to norm. No, norm but I mean, norm by other countries. I, I bet you, if you went down every other country, you would not have. As you, you know, I, I think, right? Well, that's the right question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I think that one of the things that I think the United States tends to be about 10 to 20 years ahead of a lot of the world in in uh, in terms of women's participation. Look, for example, soccer. We're actually good at that yeah. internationally when with the men, we're yeah. terrible. Um, and that's because I think compared to the Europeans, and maybe I'm out on the limb here, um, that the, the American women are much better trained and have uh, relatively, at least that's sort of obvious. No, I, I think t- Title IX and movement, the movement that followed it has led to like a greater priority on women's athletics in the U.S. in general. And it's let's just put clear. us ahead of all other countries. Let's be Most clear. Other countries. Title, what, what did Title IX do exactly? Well, it mandated well, that, uh, that, that, that colleges can't spend more money on men than it does on women's sports. And I mean, it's and so it, and, so that that had the effect of greatly increasing the investment universities made in in women's sports, basically. Right. And and obviously, that's you know, the, a lot of those sports are quote the Olympic sports. You know, they're not the they're not football and basketball, which are the big revenue generators. But there are all these other ways, and it really brought a number of women and increased the investment in those women in those. Yeah. Sports. Cause investment is, it's not just about the specific sports it's about facilities. It's about everything else. I mean, I thought, you know, one of the kind of 
early results in the Olympics that was so compelling was that Alaskan swimmer from the U.S. winning a gold medal. And kind of the acknowledgement that there's like one pool of 50 meters length in Alaska. Right. Well, it's and, Alaska, and, and, Shane. I mean, <laughs> well, no, but I, I just, you know, invest, you know, I, I think when we kind of think about, you know, why certain countries do well at the Olympics versus not, I mean, like the monetary investment is all about it. A, it's creating kind of norms and facilities and, and, you know, there's a positive feedback loop because amazing athletes can then become coaches for the next generation. I, I think there's like a real, lag to it all but having kind of facilities and just the kind of money poured in obviously does kind of have dividends i mean it used to be that u.s being ahead of the curve relatively i i think in a lot of sports is because of that but you have to remember the 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 great uh the great authoritarian countries in the world like the soviet former soviet union russia china they've historically invested huge amounts in women's competitions just so they can rise up the medal ranks um, so our, if we remember the East German women back in the day and, uh, you know, yeah. in, in sports that we weren't even thinking about, they would sort of like invest in them because they wanted to, uh, to make sure they cleaned up in the Olympics. That's, that's probably the, another, uh, un, you know, unaccounted for piece, um, that that's, that's dropping. Um, but one thing, a question is, is that what's the, I mean, do the well, men do badly? I mean, dropping? hold on, Adi, it's dropping in the, in, in Eastern Europe, perhaps. Yeah, it's, the focus I, of it is shifting. China still pursues this in a huge yeah. Russia, so, yeah, or Russia, ROC, presumably. But but here's a, here's a more interesting question to me. After the follow follow up question, I should say is: Are the men doing badly? No, I mean how we didn't we do so it? well in swimming. I can tell how you do that. We judge much. It? How do we? How would we judge yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we judge that? Uh, well, I mean, again, these are these are tough questions, but I can tell you that look at it by sport, for example, that'd be one way to look at it to sort of normalize mm-hmm. it that way and look at our trend. Um, I can say that uh, I don't think we did very well in track, and I don't think we did very well in swimming, and those are the well, big- I, I mean, well, right, but I mean, again, a weird kind of regression of the mean thing here, right? I mean, you're you, let's pick let's pick two's the sports that the U.S. has showed uh, the most like an incredible amount of dominance in over the last couple of decades. And now we're observing that, you know, maybe the rest of the globe is catching up a bit. No. So is it the U.S. doing badly or is it just that the rest of the, you know, other, you know, other countries are doing, you know, just proportionately better. So Shane, let's give Shane props for the most parsimonious explanation that we would prescribe in almost any situation. Try regression to the mean on precise. See if that can explain it, because that's as simple as it can get. And that must explain some of it. Yeah, it's hard to do that because we've been so dominant for so long. So the the mean is high, right? Yeah. So when you have, um, you know, it's not like this is new. I mean, the, the the American track and swimming team men have been so good for so many years. And so but, but, it's but not Adi, much there, sure what to address to. Is there almost something structural? Is there something, is it a more complicated version of regression to the mean when we're the only people who've invested for decades or we've invested so much better than mm-hmm. other countries for decades that, Inevitably, eventually, as soon as somebody else starts investing, our relative position will drop. Well, I'm just going to refer to an, an earlier conversation we had with one of the some of this, one of the swimming guests that we had, who mentioned that a great idea that the United States had done for many years was to put the trials close to the actual Olympics, and yeah. the the argument being that this creates a nice. Um, kind of wave that you ride, and other countries weren't doing that until this year that they were well, actually mimicking. Real- Real quickly, you're supposed they they taper after these events. They taper before the big competitions, and they wanted to basically get the trials on the same taper as the as the Olympics. 
because before they were doing it, they would have to then ramp up again and taper again. Yeah. And so they, they moved it much more closely. He literally said it was on the same paper, which is super interesting. Did it pay off this time? Well, you the other, others, other, other uh, countries copied. Yeah. yeah. That's what you, I, th- I remember the interview, you said, now I'm worried because the Australians used to do the early trials and now they pulled it close and 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 you said real time you were worried about how they were going to do, and they did well. No, I mean, and and if sort of timing of it and stuff like that is so important, let's again acknowledge what we start this conversation with is that the time zone is about as disadvantageous to America as it could be. It's like twelve to thirteen hours difference. So you know, um, you know, as far as kind of getting athletes, especially in in this kind of COVID situation where we, they couldn't just go like two months in advance and hang out there and prepare for it and stuff and settle in. <laughs> You know, there was kind of a, you know, there was, you know, I I think most athletes were kind of forced to show up like, you know, four to five days prior to an event. I know what I feel like still four days after getting to Japan. It's, you know, I mean, not that I'm in peak physical condition anyway, but it's rough. And and so, you know, I, I kind of feel like some of the some of the kind of like, you know, sort of idiosyncratic sort of variation in 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 kind of performance we saw could could possibly be done due to that. All right. So next time, I think next summer Olympics is in Paris and we only that's have right. to wait three years this time. And Shane, that's only, that's only five time zones from the East coast, six times. Yeah, no, and, I, and, I, I, and I hope, and I hope we're in a situation societally where those athletes can go over to France anytime, you know, you know like three months in advance if they want, whatever, whatever kind of, you know, whatever they've deemed kind of is best for their preparation. Whereas that kind of was taken out of their control. This right. time around. That's true. That's true. We should be we should be in a different place from COVID perspective. Guys, speaking uh, of Paris and international sport, you've probably seen the news that the greatest soccer player of all time is finally changing clubs, going to going to play for let, Messi is moving to PSG. And uh, this is fascinating in so many ways. But from what I've seen, the man still got it going on in Copa. Didn't he lead like in every statistical category in the recent Copa tournament? I mean, like every category. It was absurd. It's a 34-year-old guy. They finally won the championship, of course, so he got over that hump. But also statistically, he was still at least in, I mean, look, there's some few guys in South America who can play soccer. So what is your perspective on Messi's move? Is this just, I mean, Adi, is this just the Yankees overpaying for an aging superstar? Or is this a wise move on PSG's part? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I'm just trying to figure soccer out. I mean, you see these enormous transfer fees: two hundred million dollars, hundred and sixty million dollars being traded between one team and the other. And apparently, Barcelona couldn't afford Messi anymore because they mismanaged the finances. Uh, someone will have to explain that to me. And he kind of he didn't want to leave, but he kind of had to leave because they couldn't pay him. Even when he offered a fifty percent pay cut, he still couldn't be be uh, hired. So he kind of just went to the the team that could afford him. Um, I don't understand how a 34-year-old in soccer could be that dominant. Um, I mean, we look at, you know, Djokovic and and the great, and obviously Tom Brady who's 10 years older, but none of those sports require the incredible um, amount of running that, that's got to, father Tom yeah, has no, got I mean, to catch I, up, I, right? I, 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 I agree. Obviously, sports involve uh, soccer involves an amount of endurance that's impressive at any age. I mean, I do think it's a. Be- I, I think I think Tom Brady's a better analog to Messi than Djokovic because at least it is a team sport where you know. I mean, Tom Brady can kind of you know part of 
his late career success as Pickett, you know, he's, he's, he's also got a team around him that can kind of, you know, sort of like be, you know, kind of molded to his skill set and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, maybe Messi can kind of be that kind of role as well, where he can still show a lot of like, you know, leadership and stuff like that on the field, but maybe not necessarily be, I assume he's not running at the same speed he was when he was younger. Right. And no I'm doubt. Thinking- but I mean, I, I kind of feel like it being a team sport maybe like you know exposes you less to kind of that that the sort of like as as often to the aging thing what but, Djokovic or what Federer is doing is in my mind that much more impressive because they're they're out there on their own it's a very good point um but we do need some aging curves for soccer it would be interesting to see it'd also be interesting to see by position I'm sure it's different by position yeah. some of those positions have to do a lot more running like goaltender is an obvious one where presumably <laughs> yeah, those guys okay. are that's somewhat different, ageless that's a different I, mean, I find this that's a different sport altogether so I love that you're into soccer, Adi. We're going to have to hear more about that. I understand you might have attended a soccer game recently, which is going to be great fun to talk about down the road. We've got World Cup not even that far ahead of us, so we have more soccer to talk about. That is it for Q2. We've got Q3 just around the corner. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics rolling into Q3, the second half of the show. We do two hours here every week, coming to you via Zoom. Have Shane Jensen in the room. We have Audie Weiner in the room. Eric Bradlow is not in the room, tragically. He's out doing Eric Bradlow things. He'll be back. This is Cade Massey. We've got an open mic, open lines, open topics segment coming up. Fellas, it's August. Training camps are in full bloom. It feels like football is on the horizon. Curious what you're thinking about. Curious what stories you've heard. But I most, I first want to share a little bit of a, 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 little, a little survey I ran on, on Morton Moneyball's Twitter feed. I was curious what other people thought about the moves by Texas and Oklahoma to the Southeast Conference. Of course, we don't have those games this year. But in future years, we're going to have a whole different set of games to watch these conference games. SEC conference games are going to look different. Big 12 conference games are going to look different. How do people feel about what games they're going to have available to them versus what they have now? So I did a little poll. There's a website by a a colleague of ours at Princeton called All Our Ideas, and it feeds you these little matchups. You can ask any two things, which one someone prefers. And it's great for generating, you know, wisdom of the crowd with various ideas. Simple thing. I teed up. Basically, all the current Big 12 matchups involving Texas and Oklahoma and all the future big SEC matchups involving Texas and Oklahoma. And I just asked people, we just threw them in a mix and they drew two, the machine drew two and asked, which of these would you rather watch? Oklahoma's, Oklahoma, Kansas State or Oklahoma, Georgia? Texas, Oklahoma State or Texas, Vanderbilt, et cetera. And also I threw in just as kind of a benchmark I threw in the best of the non-conference games this year. So the power five non-conference games, because that's kind of the high watermark for what people consider to be great games, right? So for example, Georgia Clemson is a week one game. It's one of the top games of the whole season. Never mind week one, kind of a goal standard for how intriguing a game is. And so I threw a handful of these in basically like the top 10 non-conference matchups this year among power five teams, just to get a sense for how these SEC games and Big 12 games would go. 
So that's the idea. That's the setup. We pitched this out there. We got 650 people voted on this thing. The nature of, we got 39,000 votes, 39,000 preferences expressed between two football games. Which would you rather watch? So I've got a handful of results here. What do you want to know? What predictions do you have of all the big 12 matchups, SEC matchups involving Texas and Oklahoma, of all the non-conference games this year? What do you think comes out with the number one uh, head-to-head matchup record against all the other games we ask about? 58 games here. Which one do you think wins? I mean, I guess I, I, I'm curious as to what, you know, like, for example, Texas versus Oklahoma or some of their more traditional games, how they stack up versus these kind of potentially newer rival, you know, like the, the, the newer SEC kind of games that they, we would be potentially seeing. Well, you picked a good one because the number one most appealing matchup out of the 58 games, yeah, according to this sample, Texas OU. It had a head-to-head record of yeah. in the low eighty-two percent of the times it came up, and it came up you know hundreds and hundreds of times. It was the chosen matchup over the. Wait, how often do they play now? Once a year, they play every year, and they'll they'll, year. they'll probably end up in the same division or pod or whatever the SEC decides on. And so that's kind of a funny thing because you know which game are you most looking forward to now? Texas Oklahoma move to the SEC. Well, the Texas Oklahoma game. Um, what next up? You might not be surprised. So in general, OU games get do a little bit better than Texas games. I'm humbled to admit this. OU has had a much stronger program for the last 10 years, and it shows maybe a five or 10, maybe a five or six point bump. So Alabama OU is next on that whole thing. Um, what my big takeaway from this is, and maybe closer followers of SEC knew this, but there are really two tiers of SEC teams in terms of their appeal. There's kind of the blue bloods over there. There's six blue bloods before Texas know you arrive. Alabama, LSU, Georgia, Florida, Texas A&M, and Auburn. And they just hit at a different weight than the other teams do. So you can divide the current SEC teams between the kind of top tier six blue bloods and the other eight teams. And there's a big divide. You see that divide in the data. The games between those six and OU and between those six and, A&M and Texas are just – are categorically more appealing than all these other games. And, and go ahead, Shane. Oh, I, I just, I, I, it'd be nice to kind of norm those kind of, you know, preferences relative to what Texas kind of like. If, 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 you know, I guess you didn't sort of do the survey, like if Texas stayed in the Big 12, what would be the most exciting matchups? I mean, obviously, oh, God, oh, I did. Tech, I did. oh you did. Well, yeah, so yeah, are, I, I, well in games. that case, let me ask a question sort of like, where do the kind of, Whatever the next level down in terms of rivalry, I assume it would be Texas Tech or something like that with Texas within the Big 12. Where does that put, you know, where does that rank compared to kind of the blue bloods versus non-blue bloods in the SEC? That's that's the thing. So you've got what happens is the the Texas OU against the SEC blue bloods is is prime watching and it competes those would all be like top five non-conference games right now they've this is the thing they've done by moving conferences they've created a whole portfolio of these must watch games that any year would rank as like a top five non-conference game so you're not going to get all of them because they can't play everybody but you're going to get five six of these texas ou versus blue blood sec games every year that right now they're showing up as good as this Georgia-Clemson game, better right. than the Nebraska-Oklahoma game, better than the Ohio State-Oregon game this year. 
That's the that's what they created. And they, they, they're only losing one of these. So of the old Big 12 games, the only one that shows up in the same category is Oklahoma State, Oklahoma. It's the only other big rivalry out there that people are missing mm-hmm. and they're going to be sad to lose. All the other Big 12 games that those two teams are playing, they fall right in with the second tier of the SEC. So the best other game by Texas is Oklahoma State, not even a big rivalry game. It matches up like, you know, Arkansas OU – uh, Tennessee OU, that kind of thing. All those second-tier SEC teams are slotting in with the rest of the Big 12. That's the other big lesson. This, this Big 12 is not tragically behind it. They're doing as well as Ole Miss. They're doing as well as Missouri. It's just that you've got this these blue bloods that really separate out. So would, it, would kind of a one-sentence kind of, you know, superficial summary be that like kind of historical rivalries are not as interesting or exciting to people as – just kind of what the, you know, watching the best kind of contemporary football play programs play off against each other. So the, what's missing there, Shane, I think, is that there aren't great rivals. I mean, there aren't many people outside of Fort Worth that consider TCU Texas a rivalry, even though they've been right. playing. So there just aren't that many great rivalries there. In fact, you're recovering better rivalries by moving Texas to the SEC. Texas, I Texas see. A&M, I see. Texas, yeah. Texas A&M is like a top five game on the board out of these 58 games. Also, for example, Texas, Arkansas, you see a bump in Texas, Arkansas. Of those second-tier games, it really elevates up there because that is a former Southwest Conference rival. People are kind of excited about that. People like the rivalries, but they need to be actual rivalries. No yeah. one's paying attention to Texas Tech. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess like, do you, do you, would you expect that this would generalize? Like, if you did the same thing for the big – like, like if we said oh, Michigan and Ohio State are moving to the SEC – and you did the same survey amongst Big Ten. Would you do you think the kind of yeah. rivalries beyond those are stronger yeah. in the Big Ten, or would we see this kind of same thing where actually people I think, I think would see prefer, the same thing? People would yeah. be sorry to lose Michigan, Michigan State, and otherwise, yeah. like whatever. And yeah. the one the, the biggest rivalry that people care about just moved to the SEC, just like Texas, Oklahoma. I think yeah. people care about the rivalries, but they care about the real, the big, the big rivalries. The the last thing I would observe is that. We're, you know, people kind of mocked, you know, the choice between, you know, Kansas or Alabama. Poor Kansas, because it's got one of the weakest programs in the country. And we're walking away from Kansas OU and Texas OU, which, which this poll validated nobody wants to watch. But in exchange, we're getting Vanderbilt OU and Vanderbilt, Texas. So basically, Vandy is the new Kansas for Texas and Oklahoma. And people are not interested. There's a third tier. There's that top tier of the Blue Blood programs. There's the middle tier of the which involves the second half of the SEC and all of the Big 12. And then there's the very bottom tier, which is Vandy and Kansas kind of pulling up the rear. But a little primer for you, a little, you know, get that get that college football uh, machine rolling again. I guess, the, the, again, the analog with the NFL would be us having to watch the Lions every Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> it would be like the Vanderbilt choice or something like that. At least they put them on the early game, Shane. So, true. You know, true. You don't have no, to- and actually, I'll go, you know, in case there's any Lions fans out there, those are often very, very good games. It's just tough to watch this kind of team, yeah. you know, team that hasn't contended for a long time to kind of always be featured. Listen, talking about the SEC, you know, we're always talking about COVID on the show, at least for the last year and a half. Did you see the announcement that Lane Kiffin said that his Ole Miss football team and staff and coaches are 100% vaccinated? This came out in a press conference in the past week. Super impressive, if it's true. Some people have questioned mm-hmm. our buddy uh, Frisco Josh, Josh Hermsmeyer, is like, can you even? No, it wasn't Josh. 
who was it that asked this question? Do you even believe, do you even believe that Kiffin's telling the truth? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was barking carnival um, because, you know, Kiffin. But if they got it, impressive that they got it. Make them take serology tests. <laughs> I'm surprised he's even allowed to say that 100% of them are vaccinated. That seems was, like a weird. Well, they seems to public, Making people's private information public knowledge. Because if it's at 100%, you actually have made everybody's <laughs> private information public knowledge. You have. If, if, if you say something like 95%, you technically not. Anonymous, it's so anonymized. That's right. That's right. Didn't they used to give people in, in firing squads, they'd, they'd pass out one blank so everybody yep. could have the the rationale that they may not have been the person who actually shot it. Um, one last college football note, Bobby Bowden passed away at 91, longtime Florida State coach. He gets credit for building that program from nothing to one of the great, great dynasties we've seen from the you know, mid, mid-80s to 2000. They didn't leave the top five, which is just completely absurd. The other thing about Bowden is that people, people to a person – talk about not just his record, but his character and the way he dealt with everybody. And um, it's nice to see someone, especially the coaching ranks could take a lot of flack for the egos and the way they conduct themselves. And to hear one of the greatest, possibly the greatest college football until Nick Saban came along, greatest college football coach out there being lauded for his character is a, a, a pleasurable thing. Bill Conley wrote a piece, our buddy, Bill Conley, friend of the show, Bill Conley wrote a piece saying bad is never going to happen again because you just can't bring a program up from the depths that Florida State was at in the mid-70s. You just can't do it. There are too many hurdles to move a program as far as he moved the program, which is kind of interesting. Gentlemen, on the football front, you might have seen some NFL numbers coming out this week. Various services are cranking up their power rankings, and right on the heels of that, they crank up their simulators, and they start telling us things like Kansas City Chiefs have a 19% chance of winning the Super Bowl. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who some people on the show like to follow, have a 15% chance of winning the Super Bowl. Wait a minute. You've got to talk about the Jets. They're still at the bottom. <laughs> hey, Every year what? I keep looking and keep hoping. <laughs> they can't, they're probably not right at the bottom, are they? I'm pretty close to it. All right. Buddy, I, want, I want them to get better just so you'll have an NFL team to pull for. That's well, I pull for the Eagles. I've got to hope for the, root for the home team, but, you know. It's been such a pleasure to watch your NFL fandom grow organically over these last seven and a half years. I want it rewarded with a, with a good local team. And um, I don't know that's going to happen. I'm sad to report. They, they, have, <laughs> they have made some good changes. They've got you know, this hope again. I'm, I'm, there was no I'm, hope. I'm, Last year, there was no hope. We knew yeah. going in hopeless. And this year, you know, hope breeds eternal. Yeah, and no, hope, is, hope is as close as your next franchise quarterback. And you could have one again. That's right. Never know. That's right. That's right. All right. So uh, Eric, in his absence, teed up and over under for us. The FPI, we love FPI, ESPN's power rankings, sophisticated model. It's kind of a, a fellow traveler of Massey Peabody. We've got great respect for it. And they run their Sims and decide that between the Chiefs, Bucks, Packers, and Bills, there's a 50% chance of one of those four teams winning the Super Bowl. In other words, you can have those four teams or the other 28 in the league. So what do you think about that proposition? You want those four or do you want the other 28? Note, by the way, that's three. No, that's two and two. Two AFC teams and two AFC. Good. Okay. So Sorry, it, was, it was the Bucks, the Chiefs, the Packers, and Bills. Bills. The Josh Bills. Allen's Bills. $100 million, $200 million man, Josh Allen. So 
You want it's the tough. field? It's tough. Top four or the field? Top four or the field. This is a bet we always make with golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we kind of perennially choose the field. Yeah. So this is pushing you a little bit because you're probably your top three choices are on that list, I'm guessing. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, you know, also unlike golf, the one thing kind of structurally is that those top teams are going to systematically be have some 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 structural uh, advantages like that by. So, I mean, you know, it, you know, you have to factor that in that. I, I do think you probably listed two teams with a buy in that in that list of four. But I mean, anything can happen, obviously. But well, Shane, on um, the other hand, what's nice about this is these aren't market numbers. There's no big here. And so the numbers are going to add up to 100 percent. So you, you've got a, it's kind of a fair bet. In the- oh, yeah. No, I'm just trying to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to see like, you know, like that 50 percent allotment. I mean, the coin, you know, the, a coin flip in a coin flip world, that's too high, I think. But, um, well, but this, well, hold on. But, Let me make sure if that, that that goes through. I understand that there's a huge structural advantage to the top seed because of this absurd buy that's happening. Yeah. Um, but with this simulation methodology, everybody has, you know, whatever chance, you know, the appropriate win-loss weighted chance of getting that thing. I, so I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if it's going to push you too much. No, I, no, I, I guess it's, it's sort of like, I, I think those team strengths might be, uh, you know, because the simulation is still based on these FPI numbers that I think might not be, you know, might be, you know, there, there, there's not going to be. There's more randomness as, in those numbers than you think. I mean, you, those are somebody's numbers and then you, you got to take a, yeah. an extra layer of, of uh, randomization on the, on the parameters. What are those four teams sum to by the FPI yeah. simulation? We're going to take Eric's word to this 50. That's exactly 50. Well, in, in, in that case, I'm betting the field. <laughs> now, the, the other issue, of course, is the... Uh, so, so talk that through, Adi, because we know that the odds are fair. And let's just assume it's 50. And so I think you're working with some notion of uncertainty that's not in the model. So just talk it out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, essentially what I'm arguing is that, that prob- there's probably an extra layer of uncertainty. There always is, right? I mean, this yeah. is uncertainty is generally underestimated. And that means that the field collectively probably have a little bit more probability than you would assign on four teams. There's um, so when he says this, when you when you say there's fifty percent in fifty percent of the simulations, one of these four teams won. That, that's that's what he sounds like. It's it's saying. Um, I think that potentially there's just a, a little bit of, of unaccounted for randomness, and therefore yeah, yeah, I have to I, pick yeah. right. It's got to go one side. It's like I'm sitting on a fence. Which way does the wind blow? And, and, and an argument, argue. I think, an argument in your favor, Audie, is the some one randomness. I'm pretty sure those simulations are not valued in because they they basically they have that estimate FDI, and then it's the same uh, underlying estimate that undergoes every simulated game in the season, right? Right. So what there's COVID. Well, I mean, no, what no, the no, hell's happening with that? Simple. Hold on. Hold well, on. Hold on. Start with Shane's point. Yeah. He's saying, do they pick an FPI number, this power ranking as of early August, and stay yeah. with that number all the way through the season? That would be a very bad way to run the simulation because we know there's uncertainty and that's going to, you want some dynamic right. evolution of those numbers over time. If they've done that, we can be sure the model's too confident. So you want to right. build it. Because, like, you know, I mean, like, and, and specific to this top four thing, I think the thing that would argue again for the field is, you know, I mean, it's certainly easy for me to see Tampa Bay or Kansas City in the top four, but one injury happens to either team, and all of a sudden maybe they don't even make the playoffs. Okay, so in a good model, you would have enough dynamic uncertainty in these power rankings that every team moves with the appropriate volatility that you've seen mm-hmm. historically based yeah. on injury. You have basically injury volatility baked into your sim. Yeah. In a good sim, you would do that. 
I think one way of summarizing what Adi's saying, this is without incriminating FBI too much or the way they run their sim. Adi's basically saying, if I had to bet between the model being overconfident or underconfident, between the model having too much variance in it, underconfidence, or too little variance in it, overconfidence, I'm going to bet it's got too little variance, it's overconfident, and therefore I'm taking the field. I think that's one way to summarize mm-hmm. what Adi has said, and I yeah. wholeheartedly agree and so, I mean, these guys may have it perfectly calibrated, but even if they have it perfectly calibrated for the known parameters, there's stuff that they don't know. So it seems very likely that they be hard to calibrate it just right. But even, you know, I know that you, Massey Peabody has tried to do this, and it's hard to dynamically program in drift in your in the future. How And what's the model for that? Are you using, well, I mean, I don't want to get technical here, but you can try to use Gaussian simulations or, or is that really how it's working? I mean, if Tom Betty goes down, that's not a, that's not a, that's a it's big a bear, jump, right? That's, that's exactly what we're, I mean, we're trying to be perfectly calibrated. We're trying to get exactly the right amount of noise in that system. So the simple starting place, Adi, is to look, historically, we know, for example, we know the betting market, preseason betting market for the number of wins every team is supposed to get. And then we know the actual number of wins that they get. And so we know this, the distribution of actual around the expectation for every team for 20 years. So that's, that's an, that is a, a drift. And those are unbiased. We know the market's really good. So it's unbiased forecast, but, it's, but it drifts over time. And we can model exactly how much those game forecasts should drift to match that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I just think it's sort of like, I mean, you take, uh, you know, again, the nightmare scenario, I think, is you take something like Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes is knocked out for the season halfway through the season. You know, you, I assume that the methodology would be, well, Kansas City had this particular value, FDI value prior to hit while he was still playing. And that gives us, you know, we can look at historical record to sort of see how teams with that FPI value did. Um, and now that Patrick Mahomes is out, we just sort of like bring down that FPI and now that Kansas City team is like a lesser team and you kind of run it forward. It's it's sort of like, you know, I, I think the you see, where it goes look, wrong is assuming that Kansas City is kind of the sum of its parts, i.e. it's Patrick Mahomes plus the rest. But you could thing. get it if you're not you, if you're building up by parts, you could get at the individual pieces and the probability mm-hmm. yeah. of injury and things like that. You could do that. You could even just isolate out the quarterback and attend to that. But note that if you're looking at 20 years worth of history, you'll come across the 2000 whatever year that Brady was knocked out in week two or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And that First team week, will yeah. show up as a team that started out plus seven and ends up plus two or some dramatic change like that, structurally shifted you know, early in the season. Yeah. That, that's in the data. And so if you're trying to calibrate mm-hmm. to the historical data, you're going to need to have enough noise in there to catch that. And so yeah. – you can kind of approach it from that top-down perspective of just trying to match the volatility, the match the historical volatility. And Audi, it's literally just having—it's literally having a noise parameter that you tune. And how much, like, how much noise are you adding to the drift? Yeah, yeah, but it's not—it's not. But when you say noise parameter, that means it's a parameter of a distribution. Which one is it, and what does it look like? I don't—I would claim that it's not an easy one to write down. Which means that it's more than one parameter, and yeah. which means it's hard to get right. It is hard to get right. It is hard to get right. We've we've trafficked so far in Massey Peabody and just getting it more right than, than other people. Um, all right, guys, there's so much more football to talk about in the future. We are coming up on it, but that's what we have time for right now. We've got a fourth quarter interview coming up with Sparta Science. Talk a little sports science and sports technology. 
You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment in the time of COVID. We are delighted to welcome back to the show this week, Dr. Wagner, Dr. Phil Wagner. He's founder and CEO of Sparta Science. You may well have heard of Sparta. If you talk to athletic teams around certainly the U.S., lots of folks using their equipment, their analysis. We talk a little bit about technology and sports science on the show. We're always happy to talk about Sparta. We're glad to have Phil back on the show. Good afternoon, Phil. Thanks for making the time for us. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, uh, you're ringing from California, and um, I'm curious to know, I mean, really just what your day is like. I hear about your equipment here and there. I hear about teams using it. I hear about coaches excited about it. And it's fun to look at the guy who created this thing. What are you worried about today, Phil? What do you, what's, what, what's on your desk today? What frontier are you trying to push? What fire are you trying to put out? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the, the one that's always front and center is people, right? I think a lot of times with technology, um, it can be perceived as, you know, you create this great product and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great quote I read from a book the other day was that, Innovation is about adoption. Innovation is not about invention. And it's interesting because that really applies. We talk about, I think, health technology and sports. You know, we also work in the military and healthcare, but all those areas share, you know, a human element, which requires an engagement and an understanding of how to optimize data and information to improve their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is almost any inventor's challenge, right? Like you've got this cool technology, but then you've got to somehow start converting people. So it's been a few years now, but can you talk to us about that initial problem? Well, take what we should do first. Let's understand the technology because I have some sense of it, but some of our listeners won't. What are we talking about exactly? My sense of it is a force plate that perhaps surprisingly reveals all kinds of things about what's going on inside a person's body. Can you tell us about the technology first? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it started, I was an athlete, um, injured quite a, quite a bit of uh, different surgeries, racked up about 20 surgeries. Good NCAA, Lord. NCAA finally was like, hey, you're done. You know, <laughs> no more. So I moved to New Zealand to play rugby professionally and got knocked out first game. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm out, you know, and then started looking into how, how people get injured, right? And what are some common mechanisms and tools to investigate that? And a lot of it came back to how you interact with the ground. You know, how you push, how much, how often, what direction, and where the leaks in the chain of your body are occurring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bill, one second, let me just stop you there. I'm sorry to catch you so early, but this reminds me so much of a conversation we had perhaps just two weeks ago with some guys doing motion tracking training with quarterbacks now. And it goes back to Jordan Palmer's quarterback camps. And he talked just reading through Bruce Feldman had an article about this out there in California and they've got some motion tracking technology, but to listen to him talk about quarterbacks, he uses some of the exact same terminology you're talking about. It's like connections to the ground, like all cleats in the ground. And then this chain that goes from the ground all the way to the release point, which involves every 
you know, stretch of your body. But it's I'm just noting a similarity to a conversation we just had in a very different sport just two weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they call it the kinetic chain. That's probably the term you, term you heard. And it's really a flow, a sequence, right, from the ground up. And so thinking about that in terms of performance and injury, you know, what are some tools to measure that sequence at a pretty scalable, you know, level? And that's when I came across the force plate because it's capable of measuring data at a very granular level very quickly. Um, and they've been around for decades, but what has improved is, is data science. And we've implemented machine learning to take all that raw data and start not only labeling it, but processing it to build models around injury prediction and performance. So Phil, let, let, let us understand better what data is collected by the force plate, because yeah. it, to a rube like me, it's not obvious how sensitive these things are or the many different dimensions that you can actually assess with just yeah. the force plate. So what is it yeah. you're capturing? Before you process it with all your fancy machine learning, yeah. what are you capturing initially? So, you know, the key thing it measures is force. <laughs> Ground reaction force in particular is what it's termed. Um, so back to kind of Newton's third law, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm-hmm. So if you want to jump up, you've got to push down. If you mm-hmm. want to sprint forward, you've got to push back. Mm-hmm. So it measures forces in three different directions, left to right, heel to toe, and up and down. But it also measures center of pressure changes because those are the qualitative aspects of, okay, as I move, where's that pressure occurring through my feet that affects that sequence upwards on that chain? And so to give you an idea of the granularity, it captures at about a thousand Hertz. So a thousand data points a second. You compare that to a wearable where you're around 10 to 12 Hertz. There's quite a bit of granular data being processed or at least gathered from that device. So is it fair to think, I mean, you, you might as well have every unit of space, however finely you want to measure it of your feet a thousand times a second. So you've got whatever the surface area of your foot is times two, a thousand times for the seconds that the jump is experienced. And there's a down push in the up. And so I don't know how many seconds that takes uh, one and a half or something two. So you've got, okay. I'm beginning to appreciate the, the rich. And then when you think about one of the tests we do is a balance test, which is 20 seconds. So then you multiply that by 20 so oh, and, every test, we're talking 6 million data points, one person. And so you're, you're seeing all the, like, when I get on one foot and stretch out to do that, I'm wobbling all over the place, and you're watching me wobble, and you're judging me for how wobbly my foot is, right? You put a good athlete on there, and they, they lean over, and they're like rock solid still. Is that kind of the way it goes? Yeah, I think what's interesting, though, is it's actually the athletes that are the ones that struggle at the static Balance. That's right. That's what I was thinking because I'm a great athlete. And I, that's why you struggle. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. That's I was just reinforcing that. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Yeah. And so, yeah, I know free agency is coming up too. So we'll make sure <laughs> you know that you're on the wire. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's the value of it is, you know, is your discrepancy more dynamic on a jump or is it more statically on a balance? And then from there, what parts of that dynamic expression or what parts of that static ins- expression need to be improved to keep you healthy. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And obviously you're capturing kind of, I guess, what one like, you know, like me naively, I would call lower body signal, right? Because you're evaluating specifically bal- the kind of balance and force that, that your feet are applying on this plate. Again, now that you're now you were beyond the raw data and just talking about, you know, what you can infer from kind of analyzing it. Is there stuff you can say about kind of upper body movement, just kind of through, through kind of the balance of your feet, or is there kind of supplemental ways of capturing that information? Yeah, I think that that's my favorite example of machine learning is we, our first customer of the Colorado Rockies. And so they ran an analysis with the data science team over four years, 499 pitchers and published a paper in peer-reviewed journal about the prediction of Tommy John injuries, Tommy John surgeries mm-hmm. from the jump. And we said, wow, you know, we would have never looked for that. And what happened was the eccentric rate of force, which is how you start a jump and basically how you initially load when you bend to load that jump, that's the predictor. And we said, well, I guess that makes sense because if you're on the pitching mound and you don't bend to throw with your legs, then you're putting additional undue stress on your upper body to mm-hmm. throw the ball, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that speaks to that chain component of we can measure upper body directly, but we can't forget that your rotator cuff muscles are about the size of your pinky. And so we're, we're targeting these pinky-sized non-load-bearing joints instead of these giant prime movers in your hips and your legs. Mm-hmm. 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 So um, I want to hear more about that kind of research because it does seem like it's a big bridge to go from those data inputs coming off of the force plate to those kinds of conclusions, especially when you're interested in something as sparse as injuries. Correct. So one, one with that, I mean, so we're now we're data scientists and now we can say, we can start talking shop about that kind of stuff. I would think you'd need so much data. So much data. And so especially much. because you're talking about, you, you've got all these different variables on the right-hand side, if you will. And, and machine learning is going to start having them interact with each other. So you need a lot of degrees of freedom. And yet on the dependent side, the, obs- the, the, the things you actually care about, the outcomes, you've just got every now and then an injury. That's a recipe for needing a lot of data. Absolutely. hundred percent. And to your point, not just the force data, right? Because without outcomes data, that force data is useless, right? Yes. And the outcomes you want to know are generally two buckets. Performance, mm-hmm. think about baseball example, right? It's miles per hour, right? You know, strikeouts, whatever you may be. But then the other side is injury, right? And so getting both of those, and to your point, injuries are less common, right? Mm-hmm. So we, you know, you've got to wait quite a bit, but then you've also got to combine data from other areas. Like we get asked a lot about, well, can we have a baseball specific database? And our answer is you got to be careful about overfitting. Yes. Because a center fielder in baseball is much more similar to a wide receiver than he is to a pitcher. Yeah, that's right. right. And a catcher who yeah. squats for a living is the same as an offensive lineman that squats for a living. Right. Mm-hmm. So those movement patterns, there's much more similarity across sports. So that's where we got to start combining mm-hmm. all these other aspects. Mm-hmm. Super yeah, and it kind of yeah, begs the question, just kind of how much of sort of 
uh, movement and in, in kind of injury potential is, is kind of almost individual or idiosyncratic. Like, you know, when you, when, if, if I would assume like if you had a particular athlete and he comes in, he's like, I got injured and I want to use these force plates to know, kind of figure out how that happened. You, you would need also the non-injury version of that athlete's data as well. Or can you just kind of take, oh, you're similar enough to athletes like these other people and share information that way? I guess, you know, how, mu- how much can you kind of use, uh, you know, essentially other athletes as maybe kind of the, the control group for this particular treatment athlete that you're looking at? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it comes down to how homogeneous is that type of athlete? You know, pitchers is a challenge, right? Because all shapes and sizes, right? Mm -hmm. Short, fat, tall, skinny, like all different kinds. And so thankfully, there's a lot of pitchers. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of upper body injuries, right? Mm -hmm. Um, With basketball, it's far easier because the players are much more homogeneous in their body types and their requirements, particularly Mm -hmm. as the game's evolved more to like small ball, where Mm -hmm. a lot of the positions are so interchangeable, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's helped a lot. It certainly helps having an individual's healthy control for themselves. But I think at this point, we have enough data. There's about, you know, over 3 million scans, about 30,000 individuals, most longitudinal. So there's enough data in sports to be fairly predictive, even without that individual's healthy control. The data you're talking about, how does it work when you – enter into a a client relationship with some organization, whether it's a team or a school, do you, so I want to hear more about that in general, but is it the case that the data are always pooled in some way so that everybody is benefiting or are some of these organizations like, no, we want to keep our own data. We won't tap into that stuff. You won't see our data. How is it that you have 3 million and 30,000 individuals, you know, measured repeatedly over time? Yeah, I think we've had a stance early on, that this data is, you know, confidential health information. And so right from the get-go, it's been de-identified. You know, and so we've taken a pretty hard stance that, and we think that's also where it's going to be moving heavily. We're already seeing that happen in European sports where it's considered, you know, uh, you know protected information. So okay. we've de-identified it, you know, to the point where there's serial numbers rather than actual individuals are looking at and that's also helped with the confidence of sharing de-identified injury information mm-hmm. right to match up those folks you know with their injury records mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but is it the case that you are that you do continue to have access to data from say you sell um into the university of pennsylvania athletic department will those data make its way to some universal pool that you continue to mine and learn from Correct. Yes, it goes to a data lake where we store um, the information. You know, it's highly secure. About 60% of our work's in the DOD. So we also have to have a pretty high security threshold to be able to work in that kind of environment. And a lot of our work is in the special ops units that, you know, technically don't exist, right? (laughs) Well, strange. We have a few alumni through our classrooms periodically. Um, So talk a little bit about that. We didn't, we didn't I, I've seen reference to that, but we've never heard more detail from you. So this is something of interest to special forces and military operations, because of course they deal with injuries as well. This has become a part of your business. Yeah. And I think, 
you know, when you talk about national security, right, there's obvious ones that folks are aware of with Russia and China, but a top line national security concern is the health of our nation. We saw it in COVID, we've seen it in COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, At any given point over the last few years, about 20% of the military is non-deployable due to injuries. Big number. Most of those are from training. Most of those are musculoskeletal injuries. Um, So the challenge is we're a more unfit nation right now than we were 50 years ago. You take that more unfit nation, you put them into the same basic training that you did 50 years ago, people are going to break. And so, I hope basic training is not the same in 2020 as it was in 1970. That's different. That's different. Yeah. That's the challenge that the military is facing is they're inheriting, you know, less fit individuals and they've got to be able to train and prepare them okay. you know, for battle. So a couple of things on this one, that seems like a great way to get more data. I mean, talk about it's like, okay, great Colorado Rockies. Thank you for your 12 man pitching staff. I'm going to go to the DOD and collect 12,000 guys over the next year, 12,000 men and women. Um, so that's awesome. But let's take an example just to walk us through what it means to get on one of these things. So a guy comes into basic training, a woman comes into basic training. Um, they, get a, they get a report. They, they get on this thing. They get a report. And there's some kind of, presumably there's some kind of forecast. It says diagnosis and along with that, possibly a forecast, but it says, you know, the balance is wrong in this way. There might be a weakness in this thing. You need to train in this way to improve that. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So can just tell us a little bit more about what that report looks like and what it means to that, those men and women who get those reports, jump on this plate and then they get a report. And what does that look like? Yeah. We call it a, a movement signature. So they get a movement signature of, here are your forces or your center of pressure on balance. And here's a T-score to those because we don't want to be providing, hey, here's 5,400 newtons per second. You're like, great. Yeah. You know, yeah. as opposed to like, here's 40. Oh, I'm, t- I'm a standard deviation below the mean of 50, right. right? And so that context allows them to say, okay, based on that, here are the recommendations of things to reduce that risk. So alongside the gathering of scans and diagnostics, we're also gathering prescriptions, right? So these people are squatting, these people are deadlifting, these people are running two miles, right? All this coming in, how do all these different inputs affect that movement signature? Well, that's super interesting. So you've got this whole developmental piece uh, that comes downstream from the assessment piece, but you, you guys just wandered into this. You think you know what they need to do, but now you get to prescribe different courses of action and learn what the consequences are of those courses of action. That's pretty neat. Yeah. And I think I learned that, you know, I was a college football player and naturally I can swaddle. So strength conditioning coaches are like, Hey, this guy can swaddle. This is awesome. Let's get a squad up. Right. Cause then they'll get on the leaderboard. Right. <laughs> so I squatted and had the squat record. And then I went out to run the 40 before training camp and I ran a five, two. <laughs> right. If I'm running a five, two, right. There, there's no place for me on the field. Right. So it's, it's more, what does each individual need for their job or in the military, what they call their MLS. So th- this, I mean, it, it, how many machines do you have deployed across the world right now? Yeah, thousands right now at this point. So yeah. you created this. 
And they're all little sensing devices out there collecting information. How in the world do you stay on top of the data that are being generated and the learning potential that exists? Our, I'm laughing because our CTO is like, always tells me that the largest and ever-growing backlog we have is data science. Like we just have all these projects and models to run and it's um, the nature of being in a startup, right? Is every day you have a month plus of work to get done. Right. So you're running, you're creating technical debt every day, especially as a startup. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the key thing is, you know, that's where things like a data lake become important, right? Is, you want to store all this stuff. So if you can't get to it now, right, then you'll get to it at some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Some terrifically interesting questions. So for example, the training, you talked about the training, the longitudinal measures must be really interesting, even for those who don't get injured or get prescriptions. Just what is that? What are those, what do those results look like when the folks walk into basic training versus after six weeks of basic training? How could obviously the military change the training they put them through over those six weeks to get better because yeah, now we can like, now you can, now you can run those prescriptions at industrial strength. It's like, okay, now we can put thousands of people through, we can run experiments. We can put them through two different regimes to find out which has the bigger consequence on the scores downstream. Yeah. And I think the, the analogy we like to use is what we're talking about is so much like pharmacokinetics, right? It's really pharmacology right? What's the right dose, you know, and what's that response from the dose? Because it's not so simple as go run two miles. How often you should you run two miles, right? What's the frequency of taking that medicine? What's the pace, right? What's the strength of that medicine? Is it an eight mile, two mile run? Or is it a 12 mile, right? So all these factors have to be gathered just like pharmacology and then treated as such and adjusted because at the end of basic training, if you've got hundred folks in a unit, you're going to have a lot of different responses to the same stimulus. Right. 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 Well, this is a really neat, um, sensitive measure, uh, uh, a way of getting at those differences. It's, it strikes me that you should, these DOD contracts, you should be, they should pay you, but they should also be providing data scientists. Like you should, you should, they should be participating in this. Just that you should offload some of your data science work to these guys because they have people, they have motivation, um, that backlog, they could, they could help you with that. You're probably already doing this, Phil, but they can help you with that backlog. Um, let's talk about some other sports as well. I, I, I had to repress this question earlier when we were talking about kinetic chains, but I don't, I'm sure this exists and maybe I've seen it and forgotten it, but I don't think I've seen force plate work in golf. It must be, it must exist though. So have you done some work with on the, in golf? Yeah, actually, our, one of our first projects was with TaylorMade because they were, they were I think they still are owned by Adidas. <clears throat> and TaylorMade had the idea of like, hey, we're fitting clubs for golfers. Why don't we fit shoes, right? So when they were doing fitting for the clubs, they used our force plates underneath it to measure different shoes and their effect on the swing. Okay. And this was also driven by this happened right when – Tiger Woods came out and started wearing Nike Freeze on the golf course. And everybody said, what? He's not wearing golf shoes. Why is he wearing these flexible, non-cleated shoes, mm-hmm. right? And so that really does have an effect. And there's three things they found that were significant. The heel height, because the higher the heel, the more your force was anterior. 
more quad because you're elevated on the heel. Okay. They also is found- that good, Is that good or bad? Well, if you need it, right? If you need it, meaning if you needed more load on your backswing, uh-huh. that higher heel would help. Okay. Not what Tiger needs. He doesn't need more power, right? <laughs> so then the other piece is the traction, right? And that helps with the transition from the back foot to the front foot. Mm-hmm. So shoes with less traction made it more difficult to transition from back to front. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other piece was the flexibility in order to prolong the swing through on the front leg because the stiffer shoes would make that follow through much more abrupt. Mm-hmm. So stiffer shoes being the old um, foot joy leather soles, they look like dress shoes kind of things that we used and to And that's actually the exact shoe. Foot joy was the stiff control shoe. Okay. Okay, so that's fine to take your heterogeneity customization kind of idea. There's probably some people for whom that's okay, or no, everybody needs more flexibility. Yeah, I think a lot of times people, you know, we see it most commonly in diets, right? We're like, hey, keto is the solution, right, for everything. But keto's good for some folks, not good for others. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing we talk about exercises and footwear, right? There's no bad footwear. It's just what else? Now you're just being too generous, Phil. You're really <laughs> being too generous. Yeah, I think okay, so. Yeah, there's just there's different football f- footwear for everybody. And you just please step in this force plate machine and we'll give you your idealized <laughs> shoe. <laughs> well, I think, I think the, the key is, right, just being aware that what works for one individual doesn't work for the next. And how can anybody, whether it's Sparta or otherwise, help generate data to, to guide folks to better decisions? Okay. What about just in terms of generating power? So setting aside the, the impact, the facilitative or hindrance that's created by the shoes, you know, back to the Jordan Palmer quarterback conversation. Some guys, some, I keep on saying guys, when I say guys, it's, it's meant to be gender neutral, but it's not always heard gender neutral. So some men and women, when they play golf, surely generate different amounts of power through their kinetic chain and through the way they put force on the ground. And it would be an interesting, you know, gosh, golf was the first one to do motion tracking stuff. Right. But they weren't doing force plate stuff. I wonder what, I mean, surely you've probably done this, Phil. What, what do we learn about the swings and the impact and performance from force plate alone? So I'd love to get on one of these things and forget the, forget the body stuff. Just tell me what's going on with my feet. Yeah. And I wonder what I could, how I, we could eventually relate what's going on with our feet in the golf swing to what's happening with the ball. Surely this has been done already. Yeah, not, not, not yet. I think the other challenge becomes separating the skill from the movement. You know, because, and golf is a little bit easier because hopefully your, your swing is rather repetitive. Right. Within, with, within a golfer, right. You can't do as much across golfers, but within golfers, you could probably get a reasonable sense. That's right. I would, I would think you could probably get something within golfer. Agreed. What, what, here, as we wrap up, what sports, what other sports would you point us to? What are the frontiers? It's clear that one of the frontiers here is in making sense of the data. You've got this phenomenal sense sensor device deployed across the world, collecting these data and all these big questions. So that's one frontier. What other frontiers exist? What are you trying to push? And in particular, what other sports are you seeing this most relevant to? You know, baseball and soccer tend to be the most relevant because they tend to be the most player development focused. 
interesting. You know, I mean, you know, I even we work in the NFL, and I had a GM tell me one time that I don't care about preventing this guy's injury. I just want to identify his replacement. Oh heck, that's terrible. That's yeah. not that's not going to be rep. I hope that's not representative. It's not I, representative. I, yeah, it's not representative. But you know, I think baseball and soccer tend to have more of a developmental mindset. You see it with the minor leagues and the academies, mm-hmm. right? They have an infrastructure that is more geared towards development, right? Yeah. And therefore, you know, data and longitudinal yes. are more more viable. Yep. Uh, you know, I think some of the things we're excited about is applying this to the senior health space too, with falls. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. falls are such an impactful event as mm-hmm. You know, and it's, you know, it's really the start of the end for a lot of. Yeah, no, that's that's tragically well put. Yeah. So how can we better identify those and put in place, you know, insights to help that person prevent falling? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a a real, I think, frontier for us beyond, you know, the sports and the military side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's neat. Really cool. I'm glad to hear that. We'd love to hear more about how that goes down the road. Dr. Phil Wagner, thank you for spending time with us. Great fun to visit with you. Great fun to hear what's going on with Sparta Science. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. For the whole team here, especially my buddy Shane Jensen, who's sitting right here, here in Q4 with me, for Audie Weiner, for Eric Bradlow, even Eric, who was barely with us today doing Eric Bradlow things, he was here. For Matty D, the boss man, for Mr. Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then, enjoy your sports.